0: It's, um, yeah, I just I want to start by just saying thanks. Uh, thank you for those words, um, and thanks for. Uh, I know you're you're walking through some stuff, and um, the Q and A last week like was great. Um, I, th- I think there's a there there's an appropriate sense of loss, and you should acknowledge that. <clears throat> uh, Sadness or grief is uh, evidence that we have loved and been loved and, uh, and, and have lost, and, and there's loss involved in the process. So uh, to, to know that, that that's good and, and that the season that you have in the next you know, month and a half as you make that transition, and then even as you land in SOMA, for us to continue to create space for you to process and grieve, and, uh, but I do, I do think there's goodness Lord has good things for us. And that that is in no way a minimization of the grief or the loss or the process or the journey. Those two things can coexist. We can be rejoicing and we can also be grieving uh, at the same time. Yeah? Okay. Well, uh, and I'll stick around afterwards. If you have more questions, I know like last week we spent an hour doing Q&A and it was awesome. Um, But yeah, I would love to like continue that process. If it's helpful to get together and get coffee and talk more, I've, I've done that a few times this week, which were delightful uh, times. So uh, we'd love to do that as well. So um, yeah, we are going to be in Hebrews uh, chapter one. So uh, you can turn there and I'll read it uh, for us in just a second. But um, I have a love-hate relationship with Christmas uh, this whole season. I don't know if you, you feel that as well. Any of you like uh, countdown people? Where you're like, like if I had asked you in June how many days were left until Christmas, you could have told me. Well, no? No. <laughs> that's good. That's good. We had a, uh, actually, Becca Bear's husband was like, oh, that's me. I'm like, great. Okay. Um, I took my kids to school on Friday and we were listening to 98.1. You listen to that Hol- holiday tunes. <laughs> uh, such an odd mix of, of like hope and joy and goodness and then cliche, and then a lot of like really strange stuff, actually. <laughs> it gets really weird really fast. So there's like wonderful kid stuff like Rudolph, you know, and so we're singing along to that. There's, there's White Christmas, like the classics, you know, like Bing Crosby. Uh, there's that weird song by Wham. Um, you know which one I'm talking about. The last Christmas, gave you my heart. That one is literally on. If you turn 98.1 on and are in your car for more than five minutes, that song will come on. It is that consistent. Uh, but my, my least favorite, I think the worst Christmas song ever, is uh, Here Comes Santa Claus. No? <laughs> Do you think it's, there's a worse one? Yeah. Or you like that yeah. one? Yeah. That wham- the wham? <laughs> okay, there's some other ones. You're right, you're right. But listen, to, okay, here's the lyric. Maybe this is why I hate, I hate it. The, the lyrics. Can you put the lyrics to that Here Comes Santa Claus up? So here's literally, there's this line. Peace on earth will come to all if we just follow the light. So let's give thanks to the Lord above. Because Santa Claus comes tonight, like... But you know, you realize like you're in the car and you're just singing along to this stuff and then you're like, what did I just say? So here's my struggle. Is this season feels like it should be significant? It's got all the like right feelings and smells and memories and warm fuzzies and it's like it and like the anticipation builds and builds and builds and then you hit Christmas and it's like good and then January 1st and it's like over and then you still have four more months until the sun comes out yeah. and then you're like what in the world just happened? <clears throat> so our, our series, our Advent series um, what we want to say, and our church is doing this same series with you guys, and what we've been wanting to say in it is that that is so unfortunate because this season could be so much more. Because the, the, the message of Christmas, the story of the true story of Christmas is spiritual dynamite. Like it is power. Like, what, what if What if in these three or four weeks leading up to Christmas, it could be more than just presents and tinsel and lights that, with joys that fade really fast? Like, what, what if it could be dynamite for your soul? What if it could be an explosion of joy? What, what if this, these couple of weeks could be a season of spiritual awakening and refreshment? What if there was a way to reflect on Advent, reflect on Christmas, and engage in the season that could actually be a life-altering reality for you? Now, the really good Christmas hymns capture this. So if you pay attention to, like, what you're singing, you'll realize, like, some of these Christmas hymns have this incredible depth of theology. We sang, and we're going to sing some of them this morning. Uh, The title of the series comes from Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which is one of those songs. Charles Wesley wrote it in 1739. Hark, we don't use that word very often, but it means this. Listen up! This is important. Hark, pay attention, lean in. Hark the herald angel saying, listen to these lyrics. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Now that's worth harking to. Like that's worth paying attention to. And so in this series, what we're asking is like, hey, will you, will you lean in? Will, will you pay attention? Will you hark? Will you, will you try to see, try to feel, try to experience the reality that is embedded in this story? If you're new to the story, it's a great season to just explore the claims. Like, what, what, do, we, what do we Christians even believe? Like, you get right to the heart of it when you ask the question, well, what's Christmas all about? It's a good season for sustained attention and consideration of the claims of Jesus, and if you feel like I often do, you grew up in church, you've heard the stories, you've sung it, you get it. Then I just want to say this: Hark! Because there, there's there's nobody who's ever really heard, and really been gripped by this story who can be bored with it. Let's not be bored. Let's let's hark. Let's lean in. So we're going to pay attention in this series. Uh, Matt took us into a text last week to some some of the most robust, like deepest, most profound claims across the New Testament. Claims about who Jesus is and what he did in coming in Advent. So Advent means arrival. Uh, it's the four weeks of. Uh, the year that lead up to Christmas, and it's just this time where we specifically look at the first arrival, the first coming of Jesus into the world. So, Hebrews chapter 1, that's where we're at. All that, introducing chapter 1, verse 1. It says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And if you look over to chapter 2, verse 1, he quotes a bunch of Old Testament things comparing Jesus to angels, and then he summarizes and and concludes this way, chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it we must pay much closer attention we must hark to what we have heard lest we drift away from it let's pray father we are grateful for your word uh, grateful that uh, we get to be a people who gather around knowing that by your spirit through your word you continue to speak that you have spoken in so many ways but that ultimately you have spoken in your son. So we ask this morning that you would give us ears to hear, that you would open our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. Yeah, where our hearts are dull or our ears are stopped, will you wake us up? Will you open our ears to hear? Will you give us eyes to see? That we might see who Jesus is and enjoy all that he has done. In his name we pray. Amen? All right, if you're a note-taker, so uh, I usually in our, my sermons have three points. Sometimes there's more than that, but usually there's three. So And I'll always, almost always tell you at the beginning what those three points are. So if you're a note-taker, here's where we're going. Jesus is the exclusive revelation of God. Jesus is the inclusive revelation of God. And Jesus is the intrusive revelation revelation of God. Exclusive, inclusive, intrusive. They all start with I, and John loves that. He really, John's their worship leader, by the way. He's just hiding in row two, here to to heckle. All right, so number one, Jesus is God's exclusive self- revelation. He is the final word. So the author of Hebrews begins with a contrast. There's a general way in which God has spoken, and then there's a specific way in which God has spoken. So chapter one, verse one, long ago and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to to our fathers by the prophets. That's the general way. General way is that God spoke in and through history to his people. Now, primarily, the author of Hebrews is thinking about the biblical story So God spoke in the beginning. God spoke and creation came into existence. So God reveals his beauty and his power and his authority in creation. He spoke to Abraham. So after Adam and Eve had messed everything up and humanity rebelled, God speaks to Abraham and he calls a family. And he says, through you, I'm going to restore my blessing to the earth. So God speaks about his intention to restore and to heal and to uh, redeem all things to Abraham. In the Exodus story, he hears the cry of his people. And he intervenes, he comes, he rescues, he redeems. So God reveals his mercy, he reveals his grace, he comes to save people. At Mount Sinai, he gives his moral law. He says, this is, this is what human flourishing looks like. This is the way to live. This is how you honor me. God speaks, he explains himself, he shows his heart in what he says we ought to do. And then he spoke through the prophets. He told his people to stop their vain religiosity, to do justice and to love mercy. He revealed his commitment to the poor and to the needy. So at each step along the way, God is speaking, God is revealing, God is saying, hey, this is what I'm like, this is who I am, here's how you can know me. And so the author of Hebrews is primarily thinking about the biblical story, but we could add myriad other ways that God has spoken and continues to speak. The Apostle Paul says that even people who don't have this story, they instinctively know something about God and His reality. That you can look at nature and, and see that God is revealing his creativity and his power. That You can think about universal moral truths that literally almost every people across the globe hold to. And you can see like God, is, God has woven his moral reality into the fabric of creation. You see his goodness in the way that he provides rain and sun, as Jesus says, on the evil and the good. You can hear him in, in you can hear echoes of him in our longing for love and our longing for beauty. All right, so the point that the author of Hebrews is making is that God has not left himself without witness. He's not unknowable. We don't have to sit around wondering what God is like. He has revealed himself. And here's the reality. Even when we ignore those things, even, even when we shrug our shoulders and say, like, well, I just don't know if there is a God, or even if we reject him altogether, there is something within the human heart that wishes that he were actually there. We, we long for it even, if we, even in, a, in the moments that we're rejecting it, right? We, we desperately hope that love is something more than just a biological impulse to reproduce. We hope that love is a real thing, right? We secretly hope that justice will win in the end, that evil will be eradicated, that our lives can actually matter, not only now, but for all of eternity. We, like, we have echoes of Eden in our souls. A desire for God, an awareness of His existence, a knowledge that He is there. So God has spoken. That's, that's kind of the general point number one, God has spoken. But then comes the contrast in chapter, or chapter 1, verse 2. He says, He's spoken in many ways and many times, but verse 2, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So He goes from this very broad speaking and revealing to, to, to a very narrow focus. God has has fully concentrated His communication of Himself into one place. He has given a full and final revelation in Jesus Christ. Now, hark to this. (laughs) Like, like look at the claims that the author of Hebrews gives us about who Jesus is. You can put that slide up there. I put it on a slide because it just was so, like, uh, unbelievable, unbelievable, like, the astonishing claims he he is the appointed inheritor god's in game is for his son to inherit all things he wants to gather all things up and give them as a gift to his son and that son is also the world creator right through whom he created the world the means of existence of all that is, comes through the Son. And he is the universe sustainer. He upholds the universe by his word of power. So not only has he made it, made all that exists, he holds together all that exists by his word. He is the substitutionary redeemer. He came to make purification for sins, which we'll talk about more in point two. And he is the sovereign ruler. After his resurrection, he was raised, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty all authority in heaven on earth is given to him. So consider the astonishing nature of those claims, the maker of all things, the sovereign designer and creator of all that is, the originator of all life, the one who upholds the universe by his word, that one who we can know in part by looking at the natural world or looking at the biblical story and the ways that he's revealed us or even looking at the cries of our own hearts. We can know him in part, but that God, has entered into this world to give a full and final revelation of himself, a self-disclosure. Here here is who I am and what I am like, and he's done it in and through Jesus Christ. And so that is the radical claim of Advent. That is the exclusive claim, God's exclusive self-communication, which is available nowhere else. Now, that's a hard claim also. To say that they're like, yes, you can know lots about God in lots of ways, but if you really want to know him, if you want to see the fullness of who he is, you have to look at his son. And many have tried to avoid it or to downplay that claim or just sort of wiggle out from under the weight of it. One of those common objections or arguments is to say that Jesus would have actually never claimed to have been God. It was actually probably only his later disciples who like sort of came around kind of revisionist history style and asserted after the fact that Jesus claimed to be God and then wove that back into the story. It was, and the argument goes something like this, that in order to bolster their claims and advance their religion, they, they, they weren't content to just say that Jesus was an important teacher or an important prophet. They had to say like, no, 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 he, he, was, he was God, because then they would have increased authority and power and they could peddle their faith and manipulate the masses and, and gain some sort of notoriety or power or money or whatever. There's a lot of problems with that claim. <laughs> Let me just give you three of them. Uh, the first is that Jesus actually did claim it himself, really both directly and indirectly. It's ultimately why he was rejected and crucified. So indirectly, you see this all through the all through the narrative of the Gospels. For example, he declares forgiveness of sin on God's behalf, when he has he's not the one that's been sinned against. He just says your sins are forgiven. Like he's doing what what God is supposed to do in the temple. When he he taught, he didn't say like the prophets, well, thus saith the Lord, if he was speaking on behalf of the Lord. He just said, I tell you. Amen, amen, listen to me. He says crazy things like, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Wait, when was that? When exactly did you see that happen? So indirectly, it's sort of in there all over the place. But then directly, he says things like, I and the Father are one. I am the way, the truth, the life. One of his main designations for himself was Son of Man, which comes from Daniel chapter 7, the exalted, uh, eternal king. In Matthew chapter 25, he claims to be the final judge of all humanity. Like, these are massive claims to divinity, right? There's simply no honest way to read the earliest accounts of Jesus and not see his claim to divinity. It is just, it's woven into the very fabric of those stories. The second problem with that argument is that the earliest followers of Jesus were all Jews. And so they had a view of God as Yahweh, who was holy and other. He was the creator. He existed outside of time. He, he spoke. He worked in time, but, but he was uh, exalted and, and holy. He was to be feared and to obeyed, and you had to be careful. Like, literally every aspect of your life had to be carefully orchestrated in order to stay within his bounds. He was transcendent. So these Jews had no concept of God becoming human. That would have been a category mistake. In fact, it would have been the highest order of blasphemy for them to claim such a thing. In that sense, it was actually harder for them to believe that God could become human than it is for us. And yet they did. And the third problem is fairly obvious, which is that not only did it not give the disciples any power or authority, it actually cost them everything to hold on to this claim. If they really wanted power and authority, what they should have done is just said, hey, Jesus was a great prophet and a great teacher, and we have all of his teachings, and if you want the insight, you have to come to us, and we will give them to you. They could have said, yes, his death was tragic, but we've experienced a a spiritual resurrection in our hearts of Jesus, and you can experience that too. But they didn't. Not, Not one of them they all held to the claim of a divine Savior who really entered into the world and really died and really rose bodily, and every single one of them died for it. Right? So not only did they not downplay the claim of Jesus' divinity, his exclusive claim to be the full revelation of God, they actually went the opposite direction. They went all in on that claim. They put all of their chips in on it. In fact, the language that they use, it just goes, it kind of goes off the chart. You're like, what are we even talking about here? They had to create new categories for it. Look at verse three. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So God's glory is the full weight of his reality. It it is who he is at the very core of who he is. His his nature, his substance, his character, his heart, his reality. It's It's like asking, what is God made of? That's his glory. So in Exodus chapter 34, God says, this is what I'm made of. I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And the New Testament writers have the audacity to claim, like, yeah, yes. God is all of that, and in Jesus we see His magnificence. We, we see the, the heart and reality of God radiating out toward us. Right now, now that isn't just a, a thing we believe. It's a person we've touched. It's not just ideas that we talk about. It is a A reality that we have experienced what a a wild claim that we Christians believe I mean this is kind of nutty if you stop to think about it and we're like oh yeah peace on earth will come to all we just follow the light like what (laughs) what a wild claim in Jesus we we see the exact stamp of God's nature so it's not just that Jesus is like God It is that God is like Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Look at His Son. You want to know what God cares about? Look at His Son. You want to know what it's like to hear God's voice? Listen to His Son. Like in Jesus, God has come among us. And so now we see how God loves, we see how God challenges, we see how God serves, we see how God confronts, we hear God's voice. All of God's glorious self was in Jesus, and in Jesus, God has come among us so that we can see and touch and smell and hold him. So that is the exclusive claim of Christianity. That is the exclusive claim of Advent, and it's devastating, right? Everywhere else, you get glimpses of God. You can get glimpses of God in lots of different places, but in Jesus, you get pure God essence, 200 proof all the way through. So Dorothy Sayers, I don't know if you're a Dorothy Sayers fan, but she says this. <clears throat> so let us, in heaven's name, drag out the divine drama from under the dreadful accumulation of slipshod thinking and trashy sentiment heaped upon it. Which I think is uh, that is Christmas in America. That is that is American Advent. A dreadful accumulation of slipshod thinking. That means shoddy thinking and trashy sentiment heaped upon it, and let's set it on an open stage to startle the world into some sort of vigorous reaction. It is the dogma, the doctrine, the truth that is the drama, not beautiful phrases or comforting sentiments, nor vague aspirations to loving kindness, nor the promise of something nice after death, but the terrifying assertion that the same God who made the world lived in the world and passed through the grave and the gate of death. That is Advent. That is the terrifying assertion. That is the devastating claim, and it changes everything. Jesus claimed it. The disciples embraced it. What about us? You know what nobody did with that claim? Nobody kind of like, well, I don't know. You want to go get lunch? Like, that, that never happened. Like, your two options where you throw yourself at his feet and you say, you are Lord, command me. Or you say, crucify. Those are your two options with that kind of claim. That is the exclusive, narrow, specific, final God, claim. God has spoken once and for all, shown his cards as it is in Jesus Christ, his son. So, number one, exclusive claim. Now, if you can if you can receive that, the inclusive claim is the most wonderful news ever. The inclusive claim is that Jesus is God's open-hearted, sin-purifying self-revelation. Right, there's an exclusiveness But if you can receive the exclusiveness, then there is great joy to be had on the other side. So go back to the text again. He tells us a lot of things about like before Jesus became human, like the pre-incarnate son, and then tells us after what he did. But there's only one thing that he tells us about his life in the world, which is kind of odd because there's a lot that could be highlighted. Like Jesus did a lot of things in his life, and not one of those things makes mention here in Hebrews. Right? He doesn't mention that he was born in a manger to a virgin teenager, doesn't mention that he grew up in relative obscurity, that he was baptized with a voice from heaven that said, "This is my beloved son." that seems like it's important. He doesn't tell us about the Holy Spirit anointing him with power, doesn't t- talk about the authority that he taught with, doesn't say how he cast out demons, performed miracles or gathered crowds or called followers, doesn't talk to us about how he infuriated the religious leaders and befuddled the political authorities and that all the riffraff of the world came flocking to him. He doesn't mention any of that stuff. He says one thing. Did you see it? Just one thing that the author of Hebrew wants to highlight for us. Second half of verse 3. After making purification for sins. Why, Why only that thing? Because that's the key thing because that's the main thing. That's the primary word. The thing that God wanted the world to know most about his deepest self is this. Jesus made purification for sin. The white hot center of Jesus's self-revelation, Jesus's revelation of the heart of God is the cross. That is the white heart center of it all. Now, the language that he uses here, made purification for sin, actually comes from the sacrificial system of the temple. So you're probably not super familiar with that because I'm not super familiar with that. Uh, it's not really our world that we live in, but here's basically how it worked. God's presence was in the temple. God said, that's, that's where I'm going to dwell. I'm going to dwell among you inside the temple, not, at, not in the outer court, not in the inner court, but in the inner, inner court, in the holy of holies. And if you wanted to go in, if you wanted to draw near to me, God, God was going to make himself available in that place. But before you go in, a sacrifice had to be made. Something had to die. Blood had to be shed as a sacrificial substitute. Something had to die for you to go in. It was making uh, visible and and visceral, like felt, the thing that everybody knew, which was that sin-stained humans cannot just march into God's presence. Sin-stained humans can't just march into God's presence. They unravel. They are undone. They are destroyed by God's holiness and purity. But because God wanted to be near to us, He made a way. And so an animal would die instead, a symbol of purification that that we humans needed to, to come before God. So an animal would die and you could go in. Not all the way in, but you could get close. That is the language that the author of Hebrews uses. He says, Jesus made... Purification for sin. So all, all the bloodied animals were just symbols of what Jesus had come to do in reality as the final sacrifice. So that now, through his sacrificial self-giving, him dying in our place, we can go in. We can go all the way in. We can draw near and be with God. Purification has been made. Cleansing has been accomplished. Every stain of sin, what we have done and what has been done to us, has been washed away. So the good news, there's the exclusivity, and then there's the good news of the inclusivity, which is Jesus has come to open God's heart to us. Jesus has come to make, his his mission was to reveal God's desire to be near to us, and then in his sacrificial life and, and, and death to make it a reality that we could go in to bring mercy to sinners, to bring hope and welcome to strugglers, to bring comfort for sufferers to bring a wide open access to the very heart of God. And Jesus now lives, risen in victory over death, seated at the right hand of majesty, forever bidding us, come in. You can come in. That is the inclusive claim of Christianity is literally anybody can get in on this. In fact, the worse you are, the more qualified you are. It is your sin and your mess and, and your inability to get your stuff together that actually qualifies you for the saving work of Jesus. And so you see then if we if we lose the exclusive claim, if we say that he wasn't God, he just was a good prophet or, or, a, or a prophet or a good teacher or something like that, just an example for us to follow, then listen, our guilt remains. That weight that we all carry, the ever-growing list of failures, the accusations that we've heard against us, the accusations that we have against ourselves, the harm that we've done, there is no relief available. You just spend your whole life trying to run from it. The shame that holds you in bondage, that corrosive, toxic stew of disgrace and regret and self-hatred, there's no release for that. And evil continues its reign. So we live in fear, our hope fails us, death and decay win until someday the world burns and all is lost forever. So if you lose the exclusive claim, you also lose the inclusive goodness. But if he is who he says he is, and if he has done what he has says he has done, if if he is who Hebrews says, then hark to this. The whole weary world can rejoice, and so can we, because our guilt actually has been lifted off of our shoulders. The list of failures has been torn to shreds. Somebody else has stood in our place and taken the accusations against us. There is relief available to us, and our shame has been carried away. Somebody else has stepped into our place. The worst about us is not the most truest about us. The terrible shame that we've carried has actually been replaced with delight. Listen, God can rejoice over you. God rejoices. He delights in you. He wants you. And the good news is that evil has been dethroned and death has been defeated and a healed world is even now breaking in. So there is good news. (laughs) for us, and we can live in hope. So yes, Advent is on one hand devastating and terrifying. I mean, it is a terrifying assertion, as Sayer says, but it is also the best news that the world has ever heard. So what do you do with that? How do you respond to that news? Because it requires a response. That's why point three is that it's intrusive. As soon as you hear that, you go, okay, I have, I have to do something with that. I can't, I cannot just leave, like shrug and go to lunch. That's why the author in 2-1 says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. Pay much closer attention, right? If God has for once and for all spoken through his son, if he has, if he has shown his full heart, if he's like, put all of his cards on the table, he's shown us who he is, and he's gone all in for us in his son, then we ought to really pay attention to that. We ought to hark to that. In fact, the word that he uses for pay close attention, it could not be stronger. It means means two things. Number one, it means obsessive attention. Give this obsessive attention. Let it be the obsession of of your life. Let Jesus and who he is and all that he's done, let it engross you. Obsess on it until it transforms but it also means submissive acceptance. It means that we bring our life underneath it. Right? if, if this claim is true, then the only right response is surrender. Where we say, Lord, have, have your way. Here I am, Com- command me. Problem with making Christmas sappy and sentimental is that while it maybe gives us some warm fuzzies for a few months, it leaves us ultimately more empty. But if we take these claims and we really look at what is being said, if we obsessively attend to them and we submissively accept them, then it becomes explosive power, a life-altering truth that can melt our hard hearts and change the trajectory of our lives. So that's the invitation. (laughs) That's what I want to leave you with this morning well how do you respond to this you can either totally reject it or you can totally embrace it but you can't dabble in the middle it just the claims do not allow for it so Matt use this quote last week from N.T. Wright, and I just will put it before you again how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human that the fire has become flesh that life itself came to life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world, or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play-acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. What I want to say to you as we end is that you don't have to live in the shallow world. That doesn't have to be your experience. You don't have to be content with the shallows. You can come in. You can know God and be known by Him. You can bring your life under His empowering Lordship. For some of you, you might actually be hearing some of these claims for the first time this morning. If that's you, I'm really glad you're here. I think it's wonderful to explore these things. Here's the claim. The Creator has come. God has come in human form to give Himself in order to have you. Your job is to receive Him, to trust Him, to surrender. For others of you, maybe, maybe that does describe you, that you have been living in the shallows. Like you're kind of here, but you're dabbling. You're not really in, but you're not really out. You're trying to do the impossible, and it, it you'll feel that. <laughs> so perhaps today is the day that you just say to Jesus, listen, I'm all in. I don't know where you're going to go. I don't know what you're gonna, where you're going to take me or what this is all about, but I'm all in. Here I am. Have your way in me. Maybe some of you, you're already all in with Jesus, but maybe just a challenge would be like, I think there's probably some areas in your life that are not surrendered. There's probably some places in your life where you're like, yeah, I'm all in, 97%, but not that. So we have time here. We have space here, right? Here's the good news. Purification has already been made. You don't need to get your life cleaned up or make New Year's resolutions. You can just come in confession and receive mercy and again, surrender your life to Him. So... I'm going to pray for us. Uh, Communion tables will be open during this next song, and you can go and get the wafer and dip it in the juice and then hold on to it, and we'll uh, partake of communion together uh, after this first song. Let me pray. Jesus, what a remarkable word. confess this morning that we're too often uh, hard of hearing. Our, Our hearts grow dull. We hear this stuff every week, we, we, we go through the Christmas motions, we get caught up in the chaos of presents and trees and all, all the things. And we need more than that. We need more than uh, trite sayings and pithy greetings and ridiculous holiday songs. You are, you are the risen king and you are among us. you have made purification for sin and, and we get to come and receive again and bring our lives under your lordship. So Spirit of God, we give you rain. We ask that you would put your finger on places where our lives are not surrendering, where we're not trusting, where we're not putting our hope fully in you. That You would lead us into repentance and to rejoicing in the one who has made purification for sin. Meet us in this place, we pray in Jesus' name.